Welcome to this episode of Woman to Woman podcast series. Our guest today is Dennis Mueller. Dennis is currently the Chief Business Officer and member of the Management Board at FMN. She has built a strong reputation for developing high-impact strategies, structures, teams, and alliances that have fueled business results, impact to stock value, and market expansion across multiple therapeutic areas. In her current role, she has advanced the company's position as a pioneer in immuno-oncology. Concurrently, as the president of FMAD US, Dennis built the US organization to operationalize and scale the business. She has held various leadership roles at Pfizer and Wyeth Pharmaceuticals prior to that. She holds a Bachelor of Science degree from Virginia Polytechnic Institute and State University. Hi, Denise. Welcome to our podcast series, Woman to Woman. We are so excited to have you with us today. Thanks for the invitation. I'm glad to be here. So you have had a very interesting career. You recently wrote an article about it as well, Accidental Career. Can you take us through your journey there? Yeah, no, so thank you. Um, yeah, so I um, recently was speaking with Anne Fan at the Pioneering Collective, going over sort of my work experience and trying to develop, um, you know, continue growth personally and professionally. And when I was walking her through my career, she commented that it was, well, that's kind of like a very, unusual career I said yeah I said basically everything I've done has been an accident and she's like oh I love that and I said well it's kind of true because I never had a plan and we talked through sort of you know influences of childhood Um, you know my father was a GE executive and we always laugh that you grow up GE it's like being in the army but it's GE right so it's a very tough environment and expectations were always very high and you know I had received you know probably not the the most positive feedback as you know a teenager moving on into college And then um, when I was in college, I went to Virginia Tech and I was an engineer and they, all the professors were very old, white military men in the South. And this was the mid eighties. And I was basically told that I was there to find a husband and that my life was supposed to be barefoot and pregnant. Literally those were the words. And so, you know, I never really thought I deserved to have a career that I, you know, the mantra was you need to support yourself, but there was never any kind of, hey, look, you're, you're smart, you can do anything you want, how can I help you, what are you interested in, that didn't exist in my life. So, um, you know, my first job I, I took because I was following a boyfriend. Um, The second job I took was because I was tired of working for a company that was 24 hours a day. And so I worked nights, weekends, whatever it was. Um, And I went went to work for, you know, a hospital program. Uh, At that point in time, my parents were living in Pennsylvania and I was living in D.C. And I got a call at work that my mom was terminally ill with cancer. And it, it was at that point in time, I, you know, I had never been home home. So I had gone to high school in Italy. And when I went to college, my parents were still in Italy. My parents went from Italy to Tokyo, Japan. So I was never home home. And I never um, had the ability when I was working to say, hey, mom, you want to grab lunch? Or hey, mom, do you want to go to the mall? And so I decided at that point in time that I didn't want to live my life with any regrets whatsoever. 
And so I decided that I wanted to move to be close to my mother so I could go to lunch with her on a Wednesday afternoon, or I could go to the mall with her for an hour and not have it be a four hour drive. And so um, I was able to locate, you know, get a job at Unisys in Pennsylvania, technology company. Again, nothing I knew anything about, but my motivation was to be close to my family. And, you know, so that was the right decision. And you know, this is kind of a theme in my life is do things for the right reason and you'll be rewarded whether you see the reward right away or not, it will come. That industry technology sort of kind of went through its boom and busted. And I was on a layoff list and my boss circulated my resume and I landed on the desk of a pharmaceutical company. Um, I had been doing procurement at Unisys and this was the procurement department at this pharmaceutical company. And I got a call and, you know, I've always been a straight shooter. So when I was on the phone, you know, they said, well, we'd love for you to come in. And I just said, well, there's something you need to know before I come in. I'm seven months pregnant. And I know I'm not, I know this is like HR violation, but I said, I, you're going to know anyway. And I just can't walk into your office as seven months pregnant without you knowing, because I just feel that would be wrong. And he said, come on in. I've hired a pregnant um, woman before and she's my best employee. And so I went in and they hired me seven months pregnant, but you know, it was because I was going to be losing a job. I wanted to get into pharmaceuticals. This was a great way to get in. Um, and, and from there, I just followed interest and passion, um, and I tend to get bored pretty easily. So whenever I was sort of done, you know, thinking, okay, I've learned what I can learn in this particular position, what do I want to do next? But it was never with any plan that, okay, in two years, I should be this level doing this kind of work and four years. It was never that. It was like, okay, I think I'm getting bored of this. What do I want to do next? And who do I know and what, and that looks interesting. And I eventually found myself doing pharmaceutical marketing, which I loved. I'm like, oh, okay, I love this. This is what I was meant to do. And I became very passionate about that and really just had multitude of positions within pharmaceutical marketing and strategy. I also, at one point in time, was leading an entire disease area when the company I was working for decided that was not a strategic area of interest, which happens a lot. And they disassembled my entire team. And I thought, okay, so this is when I get my package. And I kind of was ready for one because I was going through a lot personally with a divorce and my father was passing away. And I thought, okay, I take the package. I take the summer off with my three little kids. I'm a single mom. And, you know, that pharmaceutical company decided that, yeah, we're not laying you off. And I'm like, well, I don't have a job. So what are you going to do with me? And they told me, well, you're going to go do business development. And I thought to myself, I don't have any skills or experience doing business development. They're like, yeah, well, your talent, we're not letting talent go. And there's a spot there, go figure it out. And so I did business development for four years. And, and you know, so it, that was an accident. It's just that they didn't want to let me go. They didn't, they didn't, they, they knew that it was talent that they wanted to retain. Um, and so then I went and did business development, which was super fun for a while. And um, then I decided to make the leap into biotech. Again, I always knew I had worked for small companies in my past and I knew I wanted to go small again. And there's this immuno-oncology company, Tiny, out of Germany. And I knew somebody there who recruited me in and having a great time helping build the company and change the company, grow the organization and 
I, I, you know, I now occupy the role of chief business officer, which 10 years ago, I didn't even know what that was. And I, you know, someone's like, well, you know, did you always want to be a CBO? I said, I didn't really know what that was. No, I didn't. It wasn't on the list. I didn't have, I didn't have anything on my list um, in terms of what I wanted to aspire to be. And, you know, today, when I think about, you know, there's questions about, you know, what do you want to do next? Well, you know, I can see myself doing a ton of things next. Um, I think right now, if I were to stay in biotech, I do would love to have the opportunity someday to lead a biotech company of my own. I absolutely love it. I think it's it's the a place where you have to take your intellect, your knowledge, but you have to be scrappy and gritty and, you know, get, you know, sometimes it's just sheer will and how you get things done, right? Creativity, the fast paced nature of it. Um, the, the, the need to always be balancing risk, right? And delivering to your shareholders. It's, it's very energizing. But at the same time, I don't know, I could, you know, be a personal trainer. I'd like to work out with my trainer. We have a good time. She keeps telling me in your next life, you'll be a trainer. So I'm like, oh, I could do that. Or my kids and friends tell me I should open a restaurant because I like to cook and they love to come over. They're like, let's have, let's have dinner. Let's all go to Denise's house. I'm like, oh. And I enjoy cooking for people. It's it's gratifying to feed somebody's soul and somebody's body with really good food because it's a basic human need, but it's also an art for me. So I don't know, I could do that too. So there's really, I just kind of just, the next thing has to make its appearance to me and we'll see what that is in in three years from now. (laughs) You know, what an incredible story. And uh, the best part of it is that you even have other career options laid out for you that you really love. Yeah, it just doesn't, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm a person who follows, I'm curious, right? So I have curiosity and I have kind of a minimum set of sort of requirements when I think about what I would potentially do next. 10%, I have to feel like I can be 10% contributing to the organization, right? Because mm-hmm. I, I feel like I need to contribute. The 90% needs to be something completely new that I'm petrified that I'm never going to be successful at. So it's like, you know, I'm driven by the unknown and I am driven by learning and growing. So it doesn't scare me not to know how to do something, you know? So it's where I find that the most energized when I really am in a place where I'm like, I don't have no idea how to do this. So that's very unusual. Most of the people kind of stay away from the unknown, right? They would go 90%. I know what I'm going to do. And then 10% is like that unknown. Do you think having moved so many different places, having had different kinds of jobs kind of helped you get there? Or do you think that's more of yeah. a personality? I think it's, it's both, right? I mean, the other thing that um, a lot of folks don't know about me is I moved a lot as a child. So every two years, I was in a new school. Um, my parents didn't really wait for the beginning of a school year or the end of the school year. I mean, I, I started, you know, in a new school every month of the year, you name it. You know, I moved in January. I moved in November. I have moved into a new school in March. And so I think there is an adaptability that you have to develop as a child because you have to make friendships really quickly and you're always being thrown into a brand new situation. And a lot of times I was in a foreign country. 
when I was, you know, five, my, we lived in a small town in France and my mother's choice was to send me to public French school or to send me to a boarding school. And she sent me to public French school. I did not know how to speak French. She just dropped me off one day and picked me up. And the next day I said, well, I'm not going back there until they learn how to talk like me. And she's like, yes, you're going back there. You know, and I was five. So, you know, it's like I had to learn French completely submerged. And, you know, of course, kids are very adaptable, but um, I think it's, it's that upbringing in terms of having moved and moved and moved so many times and figuring things out. Even like when we lived in, in Milan, Italy, I was in high school. And of course, I went to an American school. But, you know, my sister wanted to take horseback riding lessons. My mom found some horseback riding place. And every time we would go out to this horseback riding place, we got lost on the way back into the city. And we didn't know how to read Italian street signs. There was no ways. It was the middle of the night. And, you know, there's no, st the street signs are like etched into the side of the building. So I remember saying, mom, pull over to the side. Let me run up. I'd get out of the car, run up to the building. He's like, what street? Let me see if I can find where it's etched into this building and getting back in the car. And, you know, so you just sort of like figure stuff out, um, you know, and I think it's also my personality. You know, I think, you know, if you have a, you have to have, you know, some base personality that allows you to embrace this. Um, but I've had a lot, of, I actually didn't realize, I'm thinking about this now. I, I worked in Japan teaching English. There were no cell phones. And I don't read Japanese. I don't speak Japanese, but I knew how to get to work at this Juku, which was sort of on the outskirts of Tokyo, because I knew the train times, because everything is so precise in Japan. Yeah. I had to go in on a Saturday, which I generally didn't do. And it didn't occur to me as a 19 year old that maybe there's different trains on Saturday. And I got on a speed train to Nico. I didn't, and then I got off the first stop and it was just like some, some, some cement platform with no people. And I'm like, oh crap, how am I gonna, how do I get back? And my parents had gone back to the States and I was staying in Japan because I made a lot of money teaching English, but I was like, crap, I'm never gonna get home. I don't have a phone. I don't even know where to find a phone. So I'm like, well, I should walk to the other side of the track. I just walked to the other side of the track and hopped on the first train and got off at the first stop. And I sort of pieced my way back. I eventually got to work. I don't know how, but you know, I think those experiences, what was I gonna do? Sit in the platform and cry? I mean, there was nobody English around me and it was the countryside. So um, anyway, so those, those types of experience I think have shaped me to be not risk averse. How bad can something else be? So true. But I think it's not just the experiences. It's also something within you. You yeah. have some strengths, core strengths that make you go through things that are unknown, very uncomfortable for others, but you kind of thrive in those situations. So what are some of those strengths you think that really helped you? And maybe others should also start looking at. It's so important for people to know that we have all of these strengths within us. We sometimes just don't identify them. So I'm not linear in the way I think about things, right? And I, I always think that there's six different ways to do something. I'm a scenario planner. 
that's probably from my first job as a travel emergency assistance person where we had to figure out how to get people out of emergency situations is, you know, plan A, you have to assume plan A is going to fail. I actually assume failure all the time. My base case planning and operating is failure because that drives me to think about, well, if my first plan fails, what's my second and my third and my fourth and my fifth. And so I'm always thinking in terms, I'm fluid in my thinking in terms of scenario planning and that I'm also very outcome driven. There's multiple paths to get to a certain outcome and I'm open to that. So I think it's, you have to have tenacity. You, you just don't give up. And, you know, if you hit a wall, well, there's gotta be a way around it. You know, open your mind to the possibilities, you know, and I think maybe I'm stubborn, I guess. I, I, I don't, I don't like not to achieve, <laughs> you know, I, I don't like not to achieve. And I think um, I'm not willing to give up no matter how, no matter how bad it gets. I always feel there's something salvageable in even the worst situations. It's all how you look at it. Right. It's, it's all how you look at it. And I also believe that, you know, if an experience is very difficult and it's, I, I think to myself, there's a reason I have to be going through this, or there's a reason that, that this needs to be happening to me, with me, around me at this particular time. And that reason may or may, may not make it clear to me in this moment, but, but I believe in po- everything is positive. I think that's the other attitude I would say is just, just assume everything is for a good reason. Don't be afraid to fail because failures have opened doors that I didn't think would exist for me. And I try to teach this to my kids, you know, you know, it being perfect is boring. Always being a super achiever is, is, is boring. I've grown the most, learned the most from my failures. It's made me a better person, a better leader, a better colleague, a better coworker, a better friend. I think those are things. Embrace failure, calculate your risk, don't ever give up, and, and assume positive. So somebody who is new, right, just starting their career, they look at your profile, they're like, oh my God, I want to be that CBO, that physician I had not known existed, but now I know, and I really want to be like her. What would you suggest, where should they start? I know your career kind of was a lot of um, different roads leading to where you are, but in your view, now in hindsight, what would have been the quickest path to get where you are? Well, so... I think it's, you know, um, if you're very young, I would say ex- experience and explore, right? Experience and explore several different fields, right? Because you may or may not know what you love. If you happen to know what you love, you know where your passion is, then my advice would be invest the time in consuming, invest the time in learning and understanding and consuming knowledge. And then I would say, make sure that you you get a very wide diverse set of opinions and if you're in a position of leadership surround yourselves with people who are completely different than you and who are completely different than each other and embrace those people who completely disagree with you and the reason why is there's a i surround myself with people who are not like me because i, I don't need another me um <laughs> i feel you know, that, that I have learned the most from the most diverse set of thinking, and I've learned the most and grown the most and been more successful 
when, you know, look, we all work with people at some point in our career that we just can't stand. Okay. Let's admit it. We can say it happens. Right. But those people have been incredibly valuable to me. I think you have to sort of say, all right, let me, let me make sure that I am embracing and valuing diversity of thinking and the thinking that is 100% oppositional to me. When we think of women leaders, you, you get to see so many trainings, so many people talking about it, that you have to be a certain way, you have to think a certain way, you have to dress a certain way to get where you are. Any comments on that? I don't subscribe to it at all. And I'll give you an example. When I was young in my pharma career, I went to this women in leadership course. And I remember um, someone who was head of a medical department, you know, talking about her dedication to her career. And I didn't have the kind of money she had, right? And I had just had my first child. And, you know, she was saying, and I have my nanny and my cleaning people and, 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 you know, so when I come home, my kids are ready and I can spend time with them. And I thought to myself, well, that's just completely unrealistic for me, right? And then she was talking, this is how she succeeded. And, um, you know, and I'm like, well, I can't do that. So that's not going to work for me, right? I think that, um, and I've also had women leaders who, you know, and I think we've all seen them who've emasculated themselves, who believe you have to be very male-like in order to succeed. And I, I guess this is, you know, part of my core values is authenticity. I am who I am. My gender is actually irrelevant, but, I, but I'm smart enough to realize that it does play a factor in certain situations. And I don't believe in being emasculated. I believe that it's awesome to be a woman. And I think it's awesome to be a man and that, you know, together, like, you know, that diversity of thinking is better. You know, I do see the gender inequality and I, and I stand up for it, but I don't stand up for it because I think I'm a victim, right? I think that's, that's one of the things that as women, we can't just say, we can acknowledge the, the, the gap in, in gender in terms of equal pay and everything else, but I don't play the victim. I stand up for what I think is right. And, you know, sometimes people don't like that position, that the position I take. And that's okay with me, right? It's okay. I think, you know, I have three daughters. My husband has two boys. And with the whole Me Too moment, I I remember, you know, talking to my husband about this. I said, look, you know what? You guys have to admit there's locker room talk, okay? How many times have you been in the cafeteria and some young, beautiful woman walks by and you guys are, you know, making comments? It happens, okay? Just want to acknowledge it. I said, but what if that was like your daughter, right? Like, think about that. And my point to him was, women are not going to be, you know, we're going to have to fight really, really hard to change this. We need male allies who are going to make the, they are going to be the ones making the difference for women. And so, you know, I try to use the strategy of using my male colleagues to enlighten them on you should want the diversity of thinking and you are going to have to help lead this movement with us. Even though my husband's an enlightened guy, there's sometimes he says things, I'm like, really? And, and, and here's the other thing, Divya, we have boys, okay? And so I do most of the cooking and we've had nannies who were females. And I said to my husband, I said, this is not a good role model for your boys. He's like, why? They respect women. They think women are equal. I said, but look at the house they live in. 
there are females caring for them everywhere they look. You know, my husband, you have, you should be doing the dishes. Why aren't you doing the laundry? Why aren't you doing the grocery shopping, right? Because it's not what you say, it's what they see in the behaviors, trying to create situations where people see men embracing women for their skills, their, inte their intellect and what they contribute just beyond their knowledge and smarts, right? It's the diversity of perspective. It's, you know, we think differently. Our brains are yeah. wired differently. They just are, but that's a good thing, right? Just like I very much enjoy working with my male counterparts because they think so differently than me that I'm like, huh, I didn't think of it that way because of my, the way my brain is wired. You know, but you have to find a way to have these conversations maybe with a sense of humor so you don't come across defensive. I think the discussion on gender sometimes can be very heated because we as women may be coming across defensive or attacking. That yeah. does not enable a conversation. That is so true. Actually, two questions. First, um, we talked about your value, right? Authenticity. That's important to you. Are there other core values that you live by? Yeah, so authenticity, I, I have to be who I am. It's my leadership style. It's just who I am. But the other sort of two, two to three things that are important to me is accountability. I hold myself accountable and I hold myself, you know, for the people that, I, that work for me. Look, I'm not perfect, right? I make mistakes. I'm not a perfect parent. I'm accountable for my behavior. So let's just say I've had a bad day and I lose my temper with one of my kids and it really wasn't their fault. It was the rest of my day that was impacting my ability to be there in the moment with them. I go and I apologize to my kids to say, hey, look, how we had this conversation, I'm not proud of. The content of the conversation is valid, right? Like this, you can't behave this way, this, that, the other. But I think you have to have, and maybe that goes back to part of being authentic, is, is being accountable. Say you're sorry when, you're, when you do something wrong. Just own it. Just own it and move on. It's kindness and empathy. I mean, kindness and empathy is really important to me because as I'm a strong personality. I can, I've been told that sometimes I'm intimidating. I'm like, I'm not intimidating. They're like, well, you can be. I'm like, what well, don't mean? But, but that kindness piece of it, right? That kindness and fairness. I'm not really sure if there's one word that, that encompasses all of that. I try to reflect upon moments with kindness and empathy, especially when they didn't, things aren't going the way that I wanted them to do, or if I'm upset about something that happened at work or at home. I, I try to stop myself from, you know, some knee-jerk reaction to say, okay, why don't you put this filter on and, and see it through a different lens? And, and maybe that will enlighten you in some way, shape, or form. So one of my mentors a while back had told me, you know, you don't have to change the message because you think it's a harsh message because if people need to hear it, that's the truth. How you say it makes a huge difference. Yeah. So you can soften the message with the delivery piece of it, but don't take the key message out of it because you think right. that's a harsh message. So speaking of mentors, did you have any mentors? So formalized mentors, um, I have not had a lot of them, although I have one now um, who's um, on our, she's our first female board member, believe it or not, our company's been in business for 15 years and we only now have our first female board member. But I would say is, um, my father was a GE guy. 
and he helped drive and shape who I am. And maybe it was very uncomfortable for me. And as I got to be older and I recognized that I matured as to what he was trying to do for me, maybe not in the best possible way, but you know, he did shape me. And then my mother, she was, she never went to college. Um, and she always felt like a lesser person for it, but she was actually one of the most brilliant women and had skills that you can't teach. Everybody loved her. And she had this warmth and this kindness and this way of connecting with people that I always emulated. And so I feel like I think about both of them and I try to sort of marry, you know, sort of their personalities. Um, and then in terms, I have a new mentor right now. I told you brand new, first real formal mentorship. Um, and she has been incredibly helpful in um, helping me with the German sort of culture, you know, the male dominated German culture because she worked at Merck KGA and she's been um, kind and generous with her time and her insights. You know, things that she's taught me have big ears and a small mouth. She's helping me learn some of the culture elements. Like these things are never gonna change. Right, so you need to decide if this is still someplace that you can thrive or determine how you thrive. Understand where you are and what, what's in front of you and what things, learn how to operate within that environment and then focus on the things that you can have an impact on. And I've known that, but not in the context of like German male culture, right? So it's a, it's a nuance to that. I'm really enjoying this mentorship. And then I do think Pioneering Collective has connected me with a few folks who I've begun um, mentorship or just networking relationships with. What I find them to be most helpful for with me, focus or solidify something that's already in my brain versus teaching me something, right? These conversations, I'm like, oh, you know what? That's, that's what I really mean. I've been struggling with a concept in my head about, I don't know who I want to be when I grow up or what's important to me or whatever it is, I, I feel like the conversations are really helping strengthen who I am and focus who I am and helping me with some of my less desirable personality traits, <laughs> which we all have. Yeah, but the first step is to acknowledge that we'd all have it. So that's good. You're already halfway there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So in terms of personality traits, you know, we do see as women, other women making some mistakes and you're like, no, you know, because you have gone through the same cycle, you made those mistakes, you had your learnings, you know, your aha moments, and you moved beyond it. Do you commonly see um, any mistakes that women make all the time and you think, gosh, no, we should not be doing this still? Mistakes I made is, you know, in the belief that I needed to be overly dominant and strong. I wasn't really bullying people, but, you know, just, just overcompensating for the fact that I'm female and, you know, making the assumption people thought I was female, I was soft. And so I would overcompensate for that by being, you know, too direct or too tough or too whatever. And, and then I also see women just becoming wallflowers. And it's kind of that balance of, you don't have to be afraid to use your voice, but just recognize the right place to use your voice to sort of ensure when you talk, people are listening. You know, cause I think sometimes when, a, when we women get a seat at the table for the first time, all we wanna do is make sure that we're heard and we kind of overcompensate by trying to comment on everything versus being smart and thoughtful about what are the, what, 
where, where is it most important for us to make a comment so that it is very meaningful? So if you had to live your life again, right? Knowing everything you know today, what would you do differently? Wish, I guess the only thing is, I wish I would have been, I'm a risk taker now, but it took me a long time to get to this point in time. I wish I had done it sooner. There's no experience that I would, there, I, I am where I am. And it's like this crazy journey that I've enjoyed. When I look back, I enjoyed it. Maybe there's some moments I didn't enjoy, but I wish I had been more of a risk taker earlier on. I'm a complete risk taker now. I think that comes across. I'm not really afraid of any situation. I'll, I'll figure it out. I have confidence that, you know, even if it doesn't turn out the way I want it to turn out, it'll turn out some way, right? Um, right. I wish I had had that attitude 10 years earlier than I did. So in closing, um, any advice, any closing comments to women? Don't over-index on being a woman. That meaning that, yeah, there's challenges out there for us and there's a way for us to get through this and there's a way for us to partner with our male colleagues and our female colleagues to really sort of get the seats at the table that we deserve. Um, but I would say don't over-index, right? I think it's, it's, it's where I think we, we take steps back is, you know, we feel like this is a head-on war and we have to be so assertive and, and super aggressive. I'm not saying we don't have to be, but there's a, a softness that we can play in a partnership and, you know, allegiances we can build with our male counterparts to get what we want versus trying to say it's an us and them environment. Because sometimes I think the female sort of like we deserve, you know, we're being discriminated against. Sometimes I feel like the attitude and some of that messaging is us against everybody else. And I'd rather say it's, we all should want this for everybody. Yeah, no, that, that's a great message. Well, thank you so much. Um, this was really great, great conversation. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, no, it's my pleasure, my pleasure.